0: God, what love have you showered on us, have you shown us that you would give us your Son. Lord Jesus, that you would give up yourself for us. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would refresh our souls, open our minds and hearts, to hear what it is you are speaking, in your word and by your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 2. If you were to go on a road trip uh, across the country, you would come across all sorts of natural features and landmarks, from the Appalachians to the Mississippi River, the Great Plains, the Rockies, onto the Pacific Ocean. Um, Some of it you simply appreciate uh, as you drive by. You don't stop for hours at every natural wonder, every landmark. I once drove across Kansas on I-70. Kansas is a long state, longer than it might look on the map. And while it has its, its own uh, type of beauty, with all due respect to the Cho's new home, I didn't find myself particularly prone to pull over and stop for hours to stare at the wonderful emptiness <laughs> of Kansas. But then there are some places, like the Grand Canyon, where you can't simply throw a glance as you drive by. You have to stop and look and linger before such incredible beauty. And typically, as we preach through books of the Bible here, we take anything from a paragraph to a whole chapter at a time. We seek to understand it in its context, to understand its, its doctrine, what it teaches, and its implications for us. But occasionally during our, our studies, we come to a verse or two or three that are so rich, so breathtaking, so vital for our spiritual life that we need to stop and linger over just a few words. And so th- today our, our road trip is going to stop and marvel and worship at this grand canyon of Galatians. Just three verses, Galatians 2, 15, 16, and 21 mentioned last week that Galatians 2, to 21, which is this account of, of Paul's uh, confrontation with Peter in Antioch, is an important transition passage in the book. It uh, moves from Paul's defense of his personal apostolic authority, which was being questioned by these false teachers in uh, Galatia, and it's moving from that to his defense of his gospel theology, also being questioned by the false teachers. But these verses are not just an important hinge point in the book. They're also the the theological center of the whole letter. It's Paul's grand thesis statement. Pardon me. It's, It's here that Paul introduces the great centerpiece of his theology, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. While I'd initially planned to do all of verses 15 to 21 This week, as I studied, I came to the conclusion that what's written here is so crucial uh, that we need to take at least two sermons to unpack these verses. And that's not just because of how rich these verses are taken uh, by themselves, but also because of how important they are to understanding the entire rest of the book. Because what Paul says to Peter in these verses sets the stage for the rest of the letter. Everything that Paul is going to say moving forward is reflecting on, explaining, expounding, defending what he says here. In verses 15 to 21, Paul is basically answering two of the questions that we read this morning from the Heidelberg Catechism How are we righteous before God? And doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? So this morning, we're going to look at verses 15, 16, and 21. It's answering that first question about how people are right with God. And then next week, we'll look at verses 17 to 20 and ask that that objection, well, doesn't this make people indifferent and wicked? At this point in Galatians, uh, Paul has now introduced the, the key issue that's at stake in the Galatian churches, right? He's hinted to it up to this point. But now he says it outright, the false gospel that Paul's opponents are are peddling among the Galatians focused on this claim that justification before God came through the works of the law in addition to faith in Christ. And in response, the, the main point that Paul makes unequivocally clear in these verses, in which he then goes on to defend and expound through the rest of the letter, is this. No one will be justified by works, but anyone can be justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. No one will be justified by works, but anyone can be justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. And as we unpack that this morning, I want to consider it in two two parts. First, what does it mean to be justified? And second, by what means are we to be justified? So, what does it mean to be justified, and by what means are we to be justified? So, first then, what does it mean to be justified? Because it would be it would be unhelpful for us to agree on how people come to to be justified while all the while thinking that justification means vastly different things. So, before we can discuss how someone is justified, which is really Paul's focus in these verses, we have to first establish what justification means which means we need to do a little bit of theology and all God's people said amen Amen. this is the stuff that makes me excited it it might not excite you but it makes me very excited so to some this might seem a bit cumbersome right? why why do we have to learn about these words justification that's a big word there's lots of words in the Bible that end in T-I-O-N this is just another one of them But the the question of justification, what it is and how it happens, is so central, so crucial to biblical Christianity that we need to be crystal clear on it. And I I have a great burden for you in this. If I ask you, how can you be righteous before God, I desperately want you to be able to answer without hesitation, not by works, but by grace, through faith, In Christ alone. And I want you to be able to say that not simply because you've memorized it, but because you know what it means and why it matters, and because you believe it and love it and rejoice in it. So, begin with a few general comments about what justification means. Like I said, Paul doesn't really go into detail here about the definition of justification. Remember, he's he's recalling this conversation that he had with Peter, uh, and he didn't didn't really feel the need to define what justification was. Both both Peter and he knew what it meant. He was more so reminding Peter about the implications of it. Uh, but, But while he doesn't define it specifically here, we can draw from elsewhere in Paul's writings to help us understand when he says justification here in Galatians 2, what does he mean by it? So first... Justification is a divine verdict of being righteous or in the right. It's the the opposite of condemnation, right? Paul makes that point pretty clear in Romans 5.18 where he he puts condemnation and justification on different sides of the equation. He says, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. So condemnation is the legal verdict of guilt. It's the declaration that someone is unrighteous and therefore under God's wrath. Justification, on the other hand, is the legal verdict that someone is Righteous and therefore in God's favor. So to be justified means basically to be right with God. Justification is also specifically a declaration. It's not a transformation. It is to be justified is not to become righteous, but to be declared or counted as righteous. And this might be more easily explained by considering that justification is the opposite of condemnation. To condemn someone is not to make them guilty. If someone is condemned, it doesn't mean that they suddenly become a lawbreaker. Rather, to condemn someone is to pronounce and recognize and treat somebody as a lawbreaker. And so it's the same with, with justification. To justify someone is not to make them righteous, as if they suddenly stop sinning and only live in perfect obedience to God. Rather, to justify someone is to pronounce, recognize, and treat them as righteous. So closely related to that, we find that justification is a change in status, not nature. A change in status, not nature. Justification is not a transformation that that changes our nature, the substance of who we are. It's a declaration that changes our status, our standing before God. And in this way, it's sort of like a wedding. And, And in fact, marriage was Martin Luther's preferred metaphor to describe the reality of justification. When Michelle and I got married, the pastor who married us said, By the power vested in me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the commonwealth of Pennsylvania, I now declare you to be husband and wife. And in that moment, there was an immediate change in status before God, before our friends and family, and before the state. We became married. But there wasn't anything about our own personal natures that changed. Michelle's DNA didn't suddenly become beagle DNA. There wasn't anything about our personal character that changed either. I didn't suddenly become more patient or loving. You can check with Michelle on that. The change was real, but what changed was not our substance. It was our standing. We went from being unmarried to married. And it's the same thing with justification. Justification does not change our nature or our character, but it creates this new reality in which our standing before God goes immediately and irreversibly from condemned to righteous. In the Bible, the way that justification works is what we might call it twofold counting. To be justified means that our sins are not counted against us and that we are counted as righteous. Twofold counting. So to be justified first means that our sins are not counted against us. In justification, God declares our sins to be forgiven. And we read this earlier in Psalm 32. And actually, Psalm 32 is the passage that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 4 when he's describing justification. He says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So justification means our sin is forgiven, Covered, not counted against us. And that might actually be the clearest explanation of what forgiveness is. Our sins are not counted against us. They're not ignored. God doesn't just pretend like they didn't happen. They're not counted against us. We're, we're no longer liable to the punishment that our sins deserve. Right? And, and, and so it's not God ignoring this wrong that we've done, pretending like it didn't happen. It's a determination not to count that wrong wrong against us, not to charge it to our account. But again, it's not as if God just snaps his fingers and makes it disappear. He says, well, they sinned, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to pretend like that didn't happen. Because that would actually be unjust. That would be unrighteous. And we would never consider a human judge just if he or she cleared all the charges against somebody who was, who was clearly guilty. How much less so God. So God can can justly not count our sins against us, not because he forgets that they happened, but instead he counts our sin to Christ's account. God can, can justly not count our sins against us because he counts them as having been punished in the death of Christ. Christ's death is counted for the death that we rightly deserve to die for our sin. And because of Christ's Payment of our sin death was perfect and entirely sufficient. We are released from it. To be justified means that our sins are not counted against us, and and this is true. But it's it's also where many people stop. I think that's a mistake. You may have heard it expressed like this before: that justification means just as if I'd never sinned. That's clever but it's only half correct. Justification does not only mean having our sins not counted against us, but it also means being counted to be righteous. It's not only God looking upon you just as if you never sinned, it's also God looking upon you just as if you had always been righteous. We just read that this morning in the Heidelberg Catechism, that God grants and credits to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. So that's the the second part of this, this twofold counting. God declares your sins are not counted against you and God declares that you, a sinner, are to be counted as righteous. Again, we see this in Romans... Paul says, For us who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, God will credit or count righteousness. To the one who trusts in the Lord Jesus, God doesn't count their sins against them, but He does count righteousness to them. God doesn't count you as righteous because of anything righteous in you any more than He counts your sins as being paid because of any payment that you made. God counts you as righteous because he counts Christ's own righteousness, his perfect obedience, as counting for yours. This twofold counting, or if you want the $10 theological term and feel like you get your money's worth, this double imputation, sometimes called the great exchange. The penalty for our sin is counted to Christ, and in exchange, the reward for his righteousness is counted to us. Justification is not merely the, the pardon for past sins. It it actually takes the divine verdict over you that will be spoken at the final judgment in the future. It brings it forward and declares it in the present. So it's a little bit like an award show, but like way better. The winner's name in an award show has already been written on that card. The outcome is sure, fixed, established. The verdict is in. And justification is like taking a sneak peek inside the envelope before the public announcement. The difference is that we're not cheating when we do this. This is something that God wants us to know. He doesn't want us to wonder, waiting in suspense or fear, about whether or not our names are written in the book of life. By telling us that those who trust in the Lord Jesus are justified by grace, He tells us now that those those are the names that are written in the book of life. And we can be certain that God's verdict announced in our justification now will be precisely the same verdict that's announced before all creation at the final judgment. For the Christian, it's no suspense, only joy. So that's justification, a gracious divine verdict and declaration that totally and permanently changes our status before God from unrighteous to righteous and brings us into God's favor, accomplished by God not counting our sins against us, rather counting them as punished in the death of Christ, and counting us as righteous before him because Christ's righteousness is counted as belonging to us. And that is incredibly good news for sinners who cannot save themselves, isn't it? If that's what justification means, then we have to ask, well, how does one actually come to be justified? That's really what Paul's focus is here. That's the, the core issue that's at stake, both in his confrontation with Peter and his combat with the false teachers in Galatia. How can you be right with God? By what means are we to be justified? Paul answers that question quite clearly in verses 15 and 16 of Galatians 2. Let's read it again. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified By the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. In case we weren't clear on what Paul was intending to say, he repeats himself three times. That's not a mistake. Three times he indicates that what will never justify anyone is the works of the law. And three times he indicates the means by which anyone can be justified. Faith in Jesus Christ. So verse 16 succinctly summarizes Paul's theology of justification. No one will be justified by works, but anyone can be justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. We'll look at that then that statement of how people will be justified in two parts. First, how no one will be justified, and then second, how anyone can be justified. First, how no one will be justified. Paul, again, is quite clear in this matter. No one will ever be justified by works. In the context here, uh, by works, Paul is referring very specifically to things that the false teachers are demanding of the Galatians, like circumcision or the observance of food laws. But the principle extends beyond that to reliance upon any human work, any human performance or obedience, whether to God's law or any other moral standard or religious code, anything that we do to attempt to earn our place of favor with God. But Paul says here unequivocally, no human works can justify us. Nothing that we do can render us acceptable to God. Now, Paul's going to go on and explain more about exactly why that is in Galatians 3 and 4 as he defends this, this statement. So he doesn't explain it in detail here, but he does give us at least two negative implications of continuing to believe that we can be justified by works, justified by something that we do. We see both of these in verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness, that word righteousness, actually just the same word as justification, it's the same word in Greek, for if righteousness or if justification could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So to seek justification by works is at least to set aside God's grace as insufficient. And to seek to be right with God by something that we do is to say that God's gracious gift of a status of righteousness isn't enough, or that it isn't only enough it's only enough if we if we contribute something of ourself to help God out. It's to set aside the, the gift of unmerited favor for the sake of pursuing merited favor. It's like refusing a a birthday gift and trying to buy it yourself. In our pride, we think that something is worth more if we have paid for it, if we've earned it. We think that earning God's favor as a reward for our work is better than receiving God's favor as a gift, or it's more certain because I have some form of control over it. The problem, as we learn later in Galatians and, of course, elsewhere in Scripture, is that no one will ever be able to merit God's favor by their works, at the very least, because no one can keep the law perfectly. To seek justification by works is to set aside God's grace as insufficient, and to seek to be justified by works is also to say that Christ's death was unnecessary. If a right standing with God could come through our works, then Christ's death is meaningless and needless. And if Christ's death was needless and yet God still demanded it, what does that say to us about the character of God? You may recall the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before his death, full of sorrow, asking the Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me yet not as I will, but as you will. God the Son asks God God the Father that if there's any other way for this redeeming work to be accomplished, for it to be done, and the answer, of course, is there is no other way. And so Christ humbles himself to the point of death on a cross because it was necessary. Jesus himself, when he rises from the dead, he tells the disciples, did you not know that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer? and die, and after three days rise again, it was necessary. But if there are really other ways to be reconciled to God, if there are really other ways to be justified, to be right before God, if, as some argue, all roads, or at least many roads, lead to God, then Christ's sacrificial death was unnecessary, without purpose. As it stands, however, of course, that is not what the Bible teaches Rather, Christ had to die because it was the only way, as Paul says in, in Romans 3, it was the only way that God could be both just and justify sinners. It was the only way that God could both be righteous Himself and declare sinners to be righteous before Him. It was necessary because there's, there's nothing that we can do, no works of, of any kind, They can bring us into God's forgiveness and favor. The truth that was so beautifully put in the words of this hymn, Rock of Ages, by Augustus Toplady, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That brings us to what the Bible says about how people can be justified before God. How is it that God saves? How is it that God justifies? Again, three times in verse 16, we read it Justification comes through faith in Jesus Christ. No one will ever be justified by works, but anyone can be justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. I want to take each part of that briefly uh, as we go. Justification, first, is by grace. You might say, well, it doesn't actually say that we're justified by grace in verse 16, and you'd be right. But we do see this in verse 21, where Paul says, I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness or justification could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. That is, to attempt to gain righteousness or justification through works is to set aside the grace of God. It's to say to God, thank you for offering me this free, unmerited gift of your favor, but I'm going to go ahead and pass on it and I'm going to try to do it myself. Being justified through faith in Christ, on the other hand, is not to set aside the grace of God, but to embrace the grace of God. It's a recognition that there is no righteousness within us for God to reward, nothing in us that merits His favor. The status of righteousness before God is entirely a gift, grace. So to say that justification is by grace is to say that the way that we get God's favor is not through the merit of our works, but through the gift of God's unmerited favor. So justification is by grace, the free gift of God, but, but then how does that actually come into our possession? Paul says here three times, it's through faith. Justification is by grace through faith. So just as we are not justified through the merit of our works, but by God's grace, so too we are, we are not justified by the means of our works, but through faith in Christ. Sometimes we magnify faith to make it in itself something great, something that requires a great deal of effort. But faith itself is not a work. It's actually quite the opposite. Faith is trust or reliance, it's anything but a work. It's actually the cessation of work and the entrusting of yourself to the work of another. Faith is merely that which tethers us to Christ. It's the the conduit by which God's grace is applied to us. So faith faith is resting upon Christ, leaning the weight of your soul upon Him. Or as Michael Horton so wonderfully puts it, saving faith is clinging to Christ. Which brings us to the next part the justification is by grace through faith, but it is not faith in general. We're not justified because we are people of faith. There are lots of people who describe themselves as having some form of faith. The Bible says that even the demons have faith. What ultimately matters is not so much the quality or the quantity or the strength or the sincerity of your faith, but the object of your faith. This is why Paul specifies that it's not merely faith as an act or a virtue that saves us. It's faith in Christ that saves us. Justification is by grace through faith in Christ. The question is not whether my faith is strong enough or sincere enough to save me, but whether or not my faith has an object that is worthy to be trusted, an object that can truly save It doesn't matter how strongly or sincerely I believe that I can fly, that faith will not save me if I jump off the Woodrow Wilson Bridge. The object of my faith is is not worthy of trust. And in the same way, it doesn't matter how strongly or sincerely I trust in an airplane's ability to fly me, say, from Washington to Chicago, like Michelle and I did earlier this week. My faith in the plane may be weak, but if it's a trustworthy plane... And if I have faith enough to place myself inside it, it will get me to my destination. My weak faith and anxiety may prevent me from enjoying the ride, but it will not prevent the plane from carrying me to where it's going. Because it's not the strength of my faith in the plane that takes me where I'm going, but the plane itself. My faith in the plane's ability is simply that which leads me to get into it and rest myself in it and benefit from its work. So it's it's not our faith that saves us per se, but Christ who saves us through faith. Faith is merely that which connects us to Christ. So faith, the faith that saves, the faith that justifies, is not merely a general belief that in the end all will be well. Biblical faith is More specifically, a trusting in Christ instead of our works to justify us. Faith admits our own bankruptcy and inability and entrusts our salvation wholly to Christ. Finally and briefly, we find as well, justification is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Paul could have said that people are not justified by works of the law only, but also by faith in Christ. Or he could have said that faith in Christ is part of our justification. Works are another part of it. He could have said that both contribute something to our standing before God. This, of course, is what the false teachers in Galatia seem to have been saying. We are justified by some mixture of faith and works. Yes, faith in Christ is important, but works of the law are also important to be right before God. But but this is not at all what Paul says here. He makes it clear that not only is justification by faith, but that it is decidedly not by works at all. Justification is not by works alone, and it's not by faith plus works. It's by faith and not works. That is, it's by faith alone. Or again, in the words of Top Lady, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It's only by coming empty-handed, bringing no works or merits of our own and clinging to Christ and His cross by faith that our sins will not be counted against us and we will be counted righteous before God. As we close, I want to highlight a few implications of these precious truths we've been discussing before we take the Lord's Supper together. First, we must be careful that we don't confuse the declared verdict of justification with the transforming work of sanctification. These are distinct truths. They can't be mixed or confused. Uh, they, they are always connected. Those who are justified will be sanctified. Those who are declared righteous before God in status will indeed increasingly become righteous in practice, but these are distinct in what they mean and when they happen. And it 's imperative that we remember that, because we have a, a natural tendency, even as Christians. We talked about this some last week we have a natural tendency to base our justification on our sanctification, to base our confidence that God will accept us on the grounds of something within us. But that's altogether backwards. Richard Lovelace put it like this. He said, "Only a fraction of the body of present." Uh, the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. They draw their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. Few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon a Luther's platform. You are accepted, looking outward in faith and claiming the righteousness of Christ as the only ground of acceptance, relaxing in the quality of trust, which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. So we must be careful that we don't base our confidence about our justification on how we feel about ourselves or about our sanctification. You might say, I don't feel justified. I don't feel forgiven. I don't feel righteous very well. But God God never said that you were justified by your feelings. He says you're justified by faith apart from works and apart from feelings. And that's good news. We have to also remember that it's not only that there's nothing that we can do to merit or earn or deserve our right standing with God, it's a gift, but also that there's no work that we can do that conveys that gift to us. It's simply received by faith alone. And it's possible that you may have come from a religious tradition that has told you that God will save you by His grace, but the way that that grace comes to you, the pipe through which it flows to your soul, is something that you do, like penance. Rituals, joining the right church, or perhaps even something commanded by Christ, like baptism or communion. We're going to take communion together in a few moments in obedience to the command of Christ, celebration of His finished work, but, but make no mistake, eating the bread and drinking the cup does not justify you. It does not make you right with God. It does not place you in a, in a state of grace. You are fully and freely and finally justified by grace through trusting in Christ alone and not by anything else. So when you come to receive the bread and the cup, don't trust in them to save you. Let them point you to Jesus so you renew your trust in Him. Finally, friends, if, if you are trying to be justified before God by what you do, then you need to hear again what Paul says so clearly, no one will be justified by works. It is impossible. It is an endless treadmill of effort that will only leave you exhausted, will never secure your forgiveness, it will never bring you into God's favor, and if left to yourself, you will die in your sins. So friends, as God's ambassador, I plead with you now to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Rely on nothing else to save you and said, "Look to Jesus who saves all who come to him by faith. Because while no one will ever be justified by works, anyone can be justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. And if you can hear the sound of my voice, that includes you. Here's the good news: You don't need to be able to repeat all of the biblical truths and technical terms in order to be justified, because thanks be to God, justification is not by theological knowledge any more than it's by works. All that is necessary for your justification is to trust wholly in the Lord Jesus. If you belong to Him, you will indeed grow and learn more about what justification means and how it, how it fuels a life of love and joy and gratitude and holiness. But in order to be justified, you don't need to know anything more than And those words from Rock of Ages, looking to Jesus and saying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the testimony of your word, that salvation, justification is a gift. A gift of your grace to be received by faith in Christ. So, Lord, renew for those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus. Renew our faith. Show us Jesus afresh. And For those who are not trusting in the Lord Jesus, Lord, draw them that they might cease striving, that they might cease their efforts to make themselves right before you and embrace the Lord Jesus who alone can justify. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.